Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. Welcome to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, where theology matters. That's exactly right. Uh, so last time we made um, some conversation about my clothing, and so I chose this shirt on purpose because in about a month and a half or so, Mike and I and our children, some of our children, and the youth group from our church are going to be um, on a trip to the Rethink Apologetics Conference. So... Um, in Birmingham again? Yeah, well, they have it all over. We're going to the one in Birmingham. So okay. if, if you're there, you can meet us. No, that's not why I'm... <laughs> I really just want to say, just a plug for the conference. I think it's a really good conference. Um, so there you go. If you can make one in your area, I know they have one in Birmingham, Dallas, California. The California and Dallas ones have already gone. Birmingham, or Dallas is about to go if it hasn't already. Birmingham is going to go, and then they're going to have one in Minnesota. So... You can make those. Like July? Wait for the thought. Yeah, yeah, I think it's something like that. All right. Um, well, let's get started. Uh, we've had an interesting evening. Mm. We uh, just got my computer working after maybe an hour of trying to get it. Some security setting wiped out our audio stuff. So that I had to, actually. Yeah, <laughs> man. All right, so we've been talking about the doctrines of sovereign grace, mm -hmm. and specifically in this series, unconditional election. So we kind of had an intro, and then we talked about John 1, Romans 9. Mm -hmm. So the last scripture that I had, and I didn't actually have any detailed notes on it, so if you want to turn there, you can. But just uh, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, uh, both kind of in different places talk about God. Um, I know specifically in, uh, I think it's more in second Corinthians where it talks about, um, it being foolishness, the gospel being foolishness to the world and that God, uh, chose the weak and, um, the poor. That's what first Corinthians. That's one. first Corinthians one. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. I'm getting my Corinthians mixed up. Yeah. So one eighteen for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then in 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Yeah, those were the verses that I had in mind. I'm not sure what I was thinking about for Second Corinthians when I wrote these. You know, I wrote these notes back in December. So we're... 2017? Uh, yeah, no, 2018. Uh, <laughs> maybe I was thinking about, you know, he the uh, he put his glory in earthen vessels so that his glory should, should could show through us. Maybe that uh, I don't, I'm not sure what what I was thinking about then. But yeah, so the general principle of and we said this before, and I think it's 
worth saying again. We're not saying that it's some random, boop, okay, I'm going to choose him. I'm going to choose her. We're saying that God chooses for his own reasons. He doesn't reveal those to us. Uh, scripture does hint that he does choose certain people for certain reasons. It's, it's just not that he chooses based on something in us or some good in us. Sometimes he chooses, you know, like Paul was going out and killing Christians. Right. And he uses him in a mighty way. Obviously, he knew... Um, he knew how he was going to use Paul for his his work, and so he he chose he chooses Paul. Mm-hmm. Could he have chosen someone else? We don't know. Yeah, I mean that's kind of in the mind of God, right? right? So, all right. So we want to move on to some objections. I feel a sneeze coming on, so if I I do apologize. Um, all right. So I uh, went out as I try to do and try to find some objections either on YouTube or a podcast or something in written format. So um, this is Lewis Rugg. And again, I did all this prep work uh, about two or three months ago. So I don't remember if I, where I found him, but I got his name down here. Mm-hmm. So you can, I'll, I'll try to find him again before I post this. And so maybe it's already in the link below, either in the podcast or in, if you're watching the video. Um, but he says that God's, choosing of us is based on four conditions. Um, he finds people that have faith, but then he says it's not a salvific faith. It's just a trusting faith. Um, so, I mean, even non-Calvinists, Arminians, provisionalists, whatever you want to call them, would argue that Paul clearly places election before the foundation of the world. Or, or at least before people are born. So this is foreseen fate of some kind yeah i, I uh, yeah so I, I think that well to quote one of your favorite people uh, i think what happens is people kind of get in their mind how god must do things or they fail to view god as eternal and then they reason from there back into Scripture instead of letting Scripture speak for itself about what God does and who God is. So, I mean, I think it's a good point. I, I assume he, I assume this guy views God as temporal based on what he's saying, which would be a false view. So God's right. like in time, oh, this person's got faith, um, this person's got love, this person's got humility, this person has a fear of God. Those are his four things. Um so I'm going to choose him. I'm, I guess you could say he's looking, you know, down the, so to speak, corridors of time, you know, from eternity now into our timeline and going, okay, in this timeline, here's someone. But if you're looking from eternity, then you're already seeing everything. Right. So that's, that's the person who's saved at a different point on the timeline of which you can see all of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it kind of, it breaks down. It really does. Yeah. Um, well, and what's interesting is that even that logic flies in the face of and completely defies Romans 9, where Paul belabors the point that the choice of Esau and Jacob was specifically before they had done anything, right? right? To, to Im- explicitly negate that it's conditioned on uh, a faith or a love of God or a humility or, what's the fourth one, a fear of God. A fear of God, I mean, yeah. 
that those are things that eventually show up in Jacob's life, but they're not innate qualities that he has, and they're certainly not even evident in his life at the time that God is choosing him, even if you push that beyond what Paul says and make it when God is actually working in his life. I mean, you look at his story when he's hightailing it out of there because Esau wants to kill him, and he is approached by God, and God is like, look, I'm going to be your God. And then he's like, huh, well, if you do all this stuff for me, then you'll be my God. I mean, mm-hmm. even then, you have God working in his life, and his response is very suboptimal. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah, and I was just thinking as you were saying that, um, to kind of echo one of our elders who spoke the other night, his, it was in the um, Upper Room Discourse, you know, Jesus says, abide in me, and you'll bear much fruit. If you don't abide in me, you won't bear fruit, mm-hmm. and you'll be cut off. And um, all this would be fruit, you know, love, faith, um, a humility, a fear of God. That, that's the type of fruit that we would expect a believer to start having once God's working in and through them. Um, and they're already, you know, they're not going to bear that on their own. Which seems like you get into a logical circle there of fruit that exists because God is working in your life and then God chose you because that fruit was going to be there, but it's only there because he, I mean, right. um, I feel like sometimes Calvinists kind of get accused of a logical circle like that, but I feel like we can say, no, God is the primary cause. His eternal will in the covenant of redemption mm-hmm has decreed how history is going to play itself out so that, yes, he wills and works in us, but it's a linear thing that starts in the will and mind of God. It's not some kind of a circular thing. Right. He decrees... Almost in like a back-to-the-future time loop. Yeah. When God's eternal will is conditioned by something temporal... Now, Now... Something temporal like that, where God is causing something in uh, the timeline, but that but that cause is based on something in that timeline. I mean, I have argued about prayer kind of like that, but I think that's much more subtle. Like God causes certain things to happen in our lives so that we will pray, and then when we pray, He answers that and shows Himself to be faithful. Um, but I think it's still God is the initiator of that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. All right. Um, this was by Av Micah. Who's Av Micah? I don't know who Av Micah is. <laughs> uh, I asked him that as we were doing our show prep, and he was, I like, said, "So, what do you think about Av Micah? And who's that?" Yeah, I didn't. I didn't remember who all I had written down. Um, he said, "Proponents of unconditional election turn to Romans nine eleven to thirteen, which we did last time." To say that God chose Jacob and not Esau before they had done any good works, any works, good or bad, they say that God chooses people for election not based on anything good in them. This would also mean that God chose people for non-election not based on anything bad in them. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it could be that. But, you know, my first response is, whoa. Everyone's bad. God could choose everyone for non-election and be a just, good God, and we would have no claim against him. Uh, To argue that would seem to miss original sin and total depravity, total inability. Um, 
what God is doing is choosing out from among sinners those whom he will redeem, um, and he's not obligated to do that. So I'm I'm not sure. And as as I always want to go back to, God is not sending people to hell who are kicking and screaming and repenting of their sins and trying to place their faith in Christ, and he's just going, no. Right. I mean, that's not the way it works, right? right. It's... He is condemning men to hell. He's consigning them to hell for their rebellion and their sin. And they're in agreement in wanting to continue that rebellion and sin. So yeah. it, it's not... The, the, the tenor of that objection is your Calvinistic God is such a meanie. Uh, you know, God doesn't work that way with kind of this implicit statement of um, everybody really has this desire to love God. And that mm-hmm. that's the part where I go, I'm sorry, have you have you actually read much of Scripture? Because that's not the picture that Scripture paints of the heart of man. Right, right. All right. Um, he also, uh, same A.V. Micah says, he chose us in him means that he chose the ones that were already in Christ. Like, when is he doing this choosing and when are we already in Christ? Oh, well, we're in Christ before the foundation of the world. Right. Well, how did we get there? No, but he chooses us because we're in Christ before <laughs> okay. the foundation of the world. Yeah. I mean, if you read those verses, John 6, Ephesians 1, it seems clearly that he chooses us. And part of that choosing is now we're in Christ and we are adopted as sons. Those are the, those are the effects of the choosing, not mm-hmm. the cause of the choosing. Uh, which, which seems very odd. Um, there's lots of people, he continues to talk about the conditional reciprocal model, um, which basically means I choose you because you choose me. And I have down here, you know, this totally eviscerates what it actually means to choose. Um, because if we've already chose him, then why would he need to choose us? We've already chose him. Yeah, and... To me, it just makes the Bible verse go backwards where it says we love him because he first loved us. Right. Right. I mean, I I think at least in that particular context, you can parallel loving Mm -hmm. and choosing. God loved us and chose us. And as a response or an outworking of that, we love and choose Mm -hmm. God in return. And um, I and I. Just kind of stepping back for a second and just thinking kind of philosophically, I don't know why that's so objectionable to people. I, I think they think it's unfair. And that's what Paul says, you know, you know, in Romans nine, what is God unjust? But why is the only fair system, the one in which our will is supreme and is the determinative factor? Why is it inherently unfair for God to be the one who gets his way? Why? Not that we don't get our way. Right. I think the thought is that these people never had a chance um, to be with God. And so it's unfair for them not to get to choose. But if each one of us, if we're the ones choosing and someone doesn't choose Christ, they choose not Christ, then... um, then that's fair for those people to go to hell and for the people who chose uh, to go to heaven. And again, that if you're like, yeah, that's exactly right, then you don't understand total depravity. 
or Romans 9. Right. Yeah. Because yeah. total depravity says we do choose. We all choose not Christ. Right. And Adam, our you know federal head, our perfect representative, however you want to put that, I don't think God gamed the game. He didn't put in a lesser, uh, you know, person to represent us and then go, all right, you know, he, it wasn't a straw man. Um, in fact, so one of my daughters wanted, she was like, well, you mentioned straw man, but you didn't mention stone man. She was like, what about like a stone man argument? Like if you make the argument better and stronger, but then you still defeat it. And I was like, well, I guess that's good. <laughs> like if you make the best argument that you can, and then still defeat that point of view, that would be the stone man argument. Stone men aren't very good at all. (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, so it's not like he put a straw man representative in the garden for us. Yeah. He is a just God. He put the best representative that could be there and he fell. And we, as his children, we still fell and we do choose. All of us are choosing hell. And then he opens the eyes of some and draws us to him because of his love for us. And it's not because I'm better than the other persons because of his mercy. Well, and by the way, there is, I mean, go back to Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above display his handiwork, right? There, there is a sense in which God is saying the same thing to everybody and it's falling on deaf ears. Right. Right. There, there, there is plenty of evidence based on Psalm 19. Romans, Romans 1, 1 says that the invisible qualities of God are clearly seen right. by what's created and people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. It's right. an active suppressing right. of what's true about God. Yeah. So everyone has this opportunity, but their natural state means that they're unable to not hate God. Right. And that's just what, and that's what they want to do. It's not that they're going, boy, I wish, I really wish that I could not hate God, Mm -hmm. but I just can't. I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm born this. I mean, nobody's having that internal dialogue or monologue, I guess. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's, (laughs) all right. So, uh, I've got a couple of objections of my own and maybe we can kind of go back and forth. Uh, here is one that I found from Stephen L. Anderson. Um, you may know him as the Slanderson. Yeah, Slanderson. I do think that's <laughs> ironic, but he is a KJV only advocate. Uh, he's out in Arizona somewhere. Yeah, Tempe um, or Phoenix. He's one of Phoenix or one of the sub cities yeah. of Phoenix. Um, honestly, I believe this guy is a false teacher. I don't believe he's even in the faith, but uh, he's got a loud voice and said some stuff that seems common to an Armenian objection. So I decided to go with it. Uh, He said, but salvation is conditioned. So this is him arguing against unconditional election. He says, but salvation is conditioned upon repentance and faith. Okay. So we're not talking about, yeah, I would say, I would, in one sense, that's true. I mean, we do have to respond to the gospel with repentance and belief that that we had to accept. Yeah. And? So my response is, yeah, but you're confusing there the category of justification in time as salvation is applied to us versus the election of God unto salvation in eternity past. Correct. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so he's talking about the moment in which we repent and believe versus mm-hmm. the lead up to the opening of our eyes, the drawing, the wooing of us so that we can perform that act. Right. And he cites uh, just kind of 
give the full explanation. He cites Romans 10, 9, and 10, where it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Yes, completely agree with that. Amen. Yeah. You, you don't get salvation without fulfilling that condition. Yep. So... Um, and I think we've kind of belabored the belabored the point that even the even election isn't wholly or completely unconditional. It's just the unconditional aspect is that it's not conditioned on our intrinsic attributes. Right. God is not looking at us and going, "Man, I gotta have that guy." Mm-hmm. Right. Or this guy's better. Or um, he's choosing us because we cho- chose him. Those are not what the Bible says. Right. All right, did you have another one? Yeah, I've got a couple more, actually. Uh, here is one that... Is this also from Slanderson? Or from... No, this okay. is actually from a Sproul video. Okay. Right, and he's kind of walking through Romans 9 and bringing up how Paul raises up objectors to what mm-hmm. he's saying. So if you go into Romans 9 and you look in uh, verses 14 and 19... Paul himself is actually raising up objectors. And so I thought that it would make good sense to say, okay, Paul anticipated some objections. Let's see what they are and then deal with how Paul dealt with them. Um, And R.C. Sproul in his style, I don't really know what to call it, but he he terms this the that's not fair argument. Right. Right. Uh, And in particular, you see that in 9.19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? That's clearly somebody crying unfair, mm-hmm. right? If this is true, Paul, if what you're saying is true, then it's not fair that God still finds fault with anybody. Um, and my response is, you're right, salvation's not fair. Fair is we all go to hell, as you said, the six people on the chalkboard, mm-hmm. fair as all six of them go to hell. Um, under the gospel, some of them go to hell, some of them go to heaven. The ones who go to hell get fair, the ones who receive salvation, that's not fair, that's mm-hmm. grace, mm-hmm. right? That That's not justice, that's great. It's not injustice for anybody, though. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all of those who are not elect get what is fair. Uh, all of those who our elect get something that's not fair. It's better than fair. Nobody's getting worse than fair. Um, And what's interesting is when Paul sets up this hypothetical objector, he doesn't even really answer it. Right. He's just kind of like, who are you to even ask this question? Right. You know? Um, And then finally, I want to raise a question of my own, which is, why is it that this is precisely the objection that Paul anticipates? Right, because I feel like even today we get a whole lot of um, pushback from Arminians talking about the unfairness of the Calvinistic system, and it just it strikes me as just very very interesting because that's exactly the objection that Paul anticipates as he's preaching on election. Yeah, I mean that's what uh, what shall we say then is there is no injustice with God, is there? God forbid, may it never be. Right. Maybe because Paul realizes that this may seem unfair to people, but that's the way it is. 
Right. Well, it's certainly not because he's teaching Arminianism, I would right. argue. Yeah. It's not because he is talking about a system that to man's heart inherently seems more fair, and then somebody goes, hey, wait, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, that's just kind of a, I don't know how you put those people So you're saying together. Paul was a Calvinist? Yes. <laughs> or um, maybe Calvin was Pauline? Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. All right, so um, this is was by the theological program. Um, so this guy said there's no burden of proof. The Arminian bears no burden of proof since the Arminian paradigm is the most natural way of thinking. So I think this is from the, the video that we watched where we couldn't tell if there were two or three people speaking. It, it was, but it was audio. Yeah. I just remember the audio. Yeah. I mean, there is a video there, but it's a static image. Okay. Um, I, I think I, I was listening to it in the car. Right. I scraped the, the okay. I scraped the audio and then you just sent you the audio file. Uh, well, first I have this is this is so bad. Uh, <laughs> so, and this is this is I actually X, but I don't have to prove it. Right. This is actually a tactic that atheists try to prove. They'll say, "I don't. I'm not positing a belief in God. You're the one positing a belief in God. So you have the burden of proof. I have no burden of proof." And um, that doesn't follow logic. It doesn't follow standard debate tools. So if there is a statement, whatever you know the, the premise is, you've got three options. You can affirm that statement, and if you affirm it, you have a burden of proof. You can deny that statement, say that statement's false, and if you do that, you have a burden of proof. Why do you deny it? Why do you say it's false? Or you can abstain like, by saying, I don't know then that's when you don't have a burden of proof. So if someone said, you know, some hockey team was the best hockey team, I can say I don't know, and I don't have a burden of proof there. I, because I I don't know. I have no – I'm not making a statement about any hockey teams because I don't follow a hockey team, even though I did go to a Bruins game mm -hmm. and they beat the, the Islanders. I don't, was that a big win for them? I don't know. I was there to see the Pats, who won the Super Bowl. Um, anyways, so if someone is saying that that this is how it is, that there is that that Calvinism is false, then you have a burden of proof. The only the person that says I don't know uh, has no burden of proof. Um, and if you're writing a book to explain why. Arminianism is right or Calvinism is wrong, then you probably bear some burden of, of proof. Um, and then he also goes on to say, historically, uh, the first person to, to believe this was Calvin. And just like we were talking, and Arminius is just responding to the bad theology. Well, I think everyone recognizes that before Calvin, there was Luther. And before Luther, there was Augustine. And before Augustine, there was Paul. And before Paul, there was Jesus. Yeah. All of them are saying the same things. Um, and we kind of already hit on this. They say, he says, unconditional election is not fair. Why would God choose some and not others? If you are a good Calvinist, that's what that's what you have to answer me. Um, sounds a whole light, lot. Yeah, it a, sounds a whole lot like the objector in Romans nine. Right, and Paul says, you know. You know, God forbid, and he goes on to explain why that, that objection is wrong. So I've got another one that's kind of similar to that. Let me go ahead and dovetail it in here. Okay. Uh, this is, I found this one, I believe, on YouTube. Um, I have Representing Truth Returns. I think that's the username of the guy on YouTube. 
Um, don't know much about him. Mm-hmm. Listen to one, maybe two of his videos. I said listen to because it's, if I recall correctly, just a static image with audio. Sounds like a fairly intelligent guy. Sounds like a fairly well-read guy. But I think that there are... Maybe it's Caleb. (laughs) Possibly. (laughs) Um, I think there are some fundamental errors, though, that kind of lead him off into the wrong direction. But he makes a... he, he, He posits a question that I think is very telling. And he says, If Calvinism is true... Why would a non-Christian want to serve a God who damns the non-elect to hell? I'm sorry, but the Bible clearly tells us that non-Christians don't want to serve God. Right. And uh, again, it seems like it's kind of a bunch of different facets of the same objection. But the people who go to hell are the people who deserve hell. You know, Revelation says that the book's going to be opened and each one's going to be judged according to their deeds. Um, so, uh, hey, if you live a perfect life, you're going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> if any of you out there think that you qualify for that, please let us know. Yeah. yeah. Right. So anyway, this guy continues on and he says, uh, talking about the reprobate going to hell, and it is for his glory, I guess. And that's kind of the way he inflected mm-hmm. it. Yes. Yep. In fact, that's specifically what Paul says in, again, Romans 9. Um, here we go. Romans 9.22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So we have God showing his glory, both in the mercy that he is showing to the vessels of mercy, and I would argue Paul is intrinsically saying, or implicitly saying, that God is showing his wrath and his power, which glorify him. Right. Because God wants to, he desires to show his wrath. So that seems like, since everything else is bound up in his glory, that is part of, displaying his glory as well right i love watching uh like dateline you know some of those cold case with jay warner wallace but while he was still a detective um and we watch those and we see the bad guy we like we can tell from all the evidence that he really did murder that woman and you're like man i hope i hope he gets it I hope they put this creep away because mm-hmm. that's what he deserves. Mm-hmm. And then when they do and they, they find that evidence or they ask that question, we're like, wow, what a, what a great police department. And they, we glory because they put bad people where they go. They, there's some justice for those evil acts. That's a, that. That's what's going to happen. That's not the way God works. <laughs> For God, you know, people. You know, one of the biggest arguments against theism, against God's existence, is the evil in the world. Um, people say, you know, if God exists, why is there all this evil? Because he's he's good, he's powerful, um, he's loving. He should want there to be no evil. Of course, if he doesn't exist, why is evil evil? Exactly. That's a, that's by whose standard? Right. Yeah. But you know. The, there is this that argument, uh, although it's a flawed argument. At least it taps on that perception that um, God should do something about evil. Something should be done about evil, 
I always ask, well, if God got rid of all evil tonight at midnight, where would you be? Yeah. So we expect God to take care of evil. Yeah. And he does. To answer that question, I do not remember who this quote comes from. I would attribute it if I could. But uh, they basically said that in our minds, evil is always on the other side of the door. Evil is always what those people out there are doing. And it can be people close to us. It's just outside our door. Right. It's, it's right there, but it's not actually me. I'm not yeah. the one who is evil. <laughs> yeah. I think that's... One time we went downtown, we recorded for an Easter program. We asked people what was wrong with the world, and they came up with every, you know, all kinds of stuff. It was a bunch of both politically and religiously liberal College of Charleston folks were a lot They're of them. They're fun. <laughs> They're really fun. Um, but then I said, well, have you ever done something that you knew was wrong, but you did it anyway? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, could that probably, could that possibly be what's wrong with the world? People doing what's wrong when, even when they know it's wrong. So, yeah. All right. You want to wrap up number four? Uh, yeah. Calvinist. Well, can we get through all of his? We may have to. I've got a whole nother page. Okay. Well, yeah, we'll do number four, and then we'll save the rest for the next episode. Yeah. Okay. All right, so Calvinists have totally misrepresented God to the point of blasphemy. Well, not really blasphemy, though. Just borderline. Borderline yeah, blasphemy. Borderline blasphemy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, We're I knew he said... dipping our toe and... Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we... I don't know how we're misrepresenting God. I, I hear there's this complaint that I hear lots of times from Arminians or at least non-Calvinists that, you know, you know, Paul wanted to die for, for everyone. You tell me Jesus didn't want to die for everyone or, you know, you're maligning, you're, you're making God out to be someone who doesn't love people like even Paul does or, you know, Stephen or whatever. Okay. Well, if I'm doing it, I think it's because the Bible is doing that. Right. So what, I guess we got to do, you know, the RC Sproul test, you know, are we going to teach and preach what we want or are we going to teach and preach what the Bible says? And, um, I, I guess that he would need to go to the word and say, this is how you're misrepresenting God. Um, clearly God is a God of love. We've made that known. He's gone out of his way more than what he had to do to save some. He didn't, there's no, to, to our knowledge, there's no redemption plan for the fallen angels. He didn't save any of them. He doesn't have to. Because he made a redemption plan for humans and chooses to redeem some, how is that blasphemous? How is that misrepresenting his character? And it got, kind of goes along with what you just said. Um, he has some for wrath, so he can display that other side of him. Right. So. All right. Well, this has been Mike and Mike Theology Plus. Unconditional election number four. I'd have to look. I think, I think it's four. I think it is. Yeah. yeah. One, then two and three. Yeah, this would be four. Mm -hmm. So. All right. We'll catch you on the flip side for our next episode. Go give him heaven. There you go. <laughs> You've been listening to Mike and Mike Theology Plus, the podcast where we talk about all things related to Christian theology. 